morning. Today we get to talk about um, the high priest. And I titled this Sinners Who Need a Priest. And if I would have had uh, the energy for one more edit, I would have put Sinners Who Need a Holy Priest. We need a holy priest because this was about holiness. It's about uh, consecration of a high priest, and it's about how he dressed, which I love, uh, and it's about uh, holiness. So, all right. So we're going to talk about this morning, just an overview. The way I wanted to do it, or I ended up doing this lesson, was looking at the Old Testament, looking at the New Testament, looking at us, doing the whole scan from the beginning of Scripture to Revelation, and I, I love doing that. I, I just think when I can see God from beginning to middle to end, well, there is no end for him, but I mean ending for me being in heaven, um, I, I just that, that gives me a, a foundation and a rock-hard, reliable God. So I, I love to see God over a timeline, uh, and I think that's what we're doing here. Uh, so we're going to talk about sin. Uh, the first category, God's always known about us and how we sin. And the second section is God has always known that he'd provide a, a solution to that. He's always known that. And, I, I, and I, for some reason this, uh, this week, the always kind of captured me. God has always been this way. He's always been this way. He always will be this way. And it just gives me uh, a firm foundation to stand on that uh, he's never going to let me down. Uh, and then the third, we'll really dig in a little bit more. Uh, I'm sure you covered it in your small groups, but Exodus 28 and 29 in the specifics of the high priest. But first, kind of the, the drum roll of uh, I, the first question I came with when I did this lesson was, do I need a high priest? You know, and I think, how much do I stand before God? And, and in my mind, it's just, do I need an advocate? Do I need someone to stand in front of me? And I think it's real easy to um, stand in front of God and, and as if it's just me alone, uh, as if God has forgiven me, and then I stand in front of God with no one in front of me, no one beside me, and accepting Christ has turned me into a we. I'm not a me anymore, I'm a we. And, and, and that's what sin is, when I am a me instead of a we. I, I just all of a sudden uh, can forget him or, or do that, or I come up with my own idea of what I think is better to do. So um, I, the question first, do I need a high priest is where I started. Uh, and so that's, that's our um, lecture. All right. Uh, the first thing, I, I like to use a lot of visuals. I, I see God in places, in nature, a lot. Uh, and so we'll uh, talk about that a little bit too. But I just wanted to tell you, you know, we've been talking about story a lot at Open Door. And Dan Allender introducing us to this idea of going back into our stories and, and seeing God there, uh, retaining the parts of the story um, that uh, in retrospect, keeping the parts of the story, but then maybe looking to see how God brings it into a harmony. 
and how we look back on a story that we thought maybe, I mean, John Rhodes shared one not too long ago uh, about how he, when uh, he was a kid, he thought his dad kind of ignored him and didn't invest in him much, but then when he rethought the story, he remembered his dad buying him a BB gun and his other siblings didn't get that, or remembering that his dad bought him a car when he went away to school and, and he was reduced to tears remembering that. Uh, and this is what we're doing with our look at Exodus 28 and 29. We're, we're going back to the beginning of a story. And this whole scripture is Jesus' story. It's the story of Jesus, this whole story. Uh, and so that's what we're going to do. So I'm going to start with this first story. So is there an on and off for me on this? On the side? I'm just, oh, here, here. Sorry, it's really little. There we go, sorry. Okay, so we're going to tell the story of Mrs. Faust and Mrs. Womack, um, a story about them. Um, my husband went to the Dan Allender seminar on Friday night, and he came home, and I said, well, what was your story? And he looked at me, and he paused, and he waited, and he didn't want to tell it. His eyes filled up with tears. I'm married to an engineer. He doesn't cry. Um, I, I think I've only seen him cry at my daughter's wedding. Um, and um, so when he told the story, it was sweet to me. Uh, Mrs. Faust was his third grade teacher, and she told Doug, my husband's name is Doug, told Doug's mom that uh, there's no reason he should be in the gifted program because he wasn't very bright and that she should lower her expectations for him in the long run. Uh, and if you know, uh, if any of you have met Andrea, my mother-in-law, she is the biggest advocate uh, that anybody could ever want. She's a beautiful woman and encouraging. And somehow in that family, there's a pretty intelligent uh, gene. Uh, the three boys that she had were all valedictorians uh, of their class. And uh, they're all very, very bright. They're all very well educated at this point but still in his heart was the story of Mrs. Faust who told him that he's never gonna make it. And within the story is then uh, in fourth grade, he went to fourth grade and he got Mrs. Womack. Uh, I asked Doug, should I change the names? He goes, no. I said, all right, I won't change the name. <laughs> Mrs. Womack uh, was his fourth grade teacher. And she said, I don't know what he's doing in this other class. He's bored out of his mind. He's obviously, you know. And so she was his shalom, is what Dan Allender calls it. That means the person that ushered in the piece, the person that came in and made it a new story, that, uh, that provided a, a piece and maybe I would say a Sabbath rest uh, where you feel totally accepted and you're exactly who you should be. Uh, and, and totally loved, and you don't have to hide, and you don't have to be ashamed. That was Mrs. Womack, and that's who ushered in the shalom. And so that's what we're doing. We're looking back, uh, looking back, going back to Exodus, and seeing the picture. We're able to do that, to go back, and that God knows all of our stories, and he's always known about us. And he's always known about the problems and the stories. From when uh, he's known these things even before we existed, and he had a solution for the story of our sin. And this verse we should all know. 
This should be a verse that we all know. Um, for those of us who know it, uh, and uh, where your phone knows it too, um, uh, let's say Romans 3.23 if you know it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And when we say all, I thought, well, I wonder how many people that is. And I looked it up. How many people have ever lived on the face of the earth? There are 108 billion. And how many are on the earth now? 7.6 billion. All of them, every single person has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. And of course, if you want to do a little quantitative analysis, which I'm a lousy math person, uh, that would be one sin each. Uh, so uh, that's, uh, that's crazy. Then you think of the original sin. We'll do the sweep through the original sin, the sin of Cain and Abel, the murder there, the lies of Abraham about his wife, um, you know, the sin, the judgment that came against Noah because all people did was evil all the time. Jacob's deceit and Joseph's brothers and Potiphar's wife accusing him. And those were just the spots of along the way of sin. And then um, we go to generational sin. We're just adding this all up. And I think the older I get, for those of you who are older, and you see starting to be able to see generational sin, you see... You know, I just recently inherited China from my great-grandmother from before the turn of the century, maybe 19, I mean, uh, 1845. And I thought, you know, so I'm, I'm thinking about my great-grandma and my grandma and my mom and me, and so I'm seeing four generations and uh, knowing the sin that was committed against my mom, wondering about her parents and why they hurt her so badly and what happened even before them. And you see this thicket. Um, I don't know if any of you have seen St. Augustine grass, but it, it, it establishes a bed of root work. And the same thing with Bermuda, uh, that it's very hard to get rid of because it's such a thicket underneath. You, you just can't, you can't snuff it out. And, and that's sin. That's our generational sin. But Jesus rescues us out of this chaos and darkness. He rescues us out, and so we're going to look at specifics and patterns today about this, this section that God has always uh, known about sin. And in our first section there, I didn't mention, but in Genesis 3.15, I think Jesus nips it in the bud. God nips it in the bud, which is so precious to me this year, learning this. Genesis 3.15 about how when Jesus tells Eve and gives her hope that he is going to put his foot on Satan's head and kill him, and that through her line, through her lineage, will come the Christ. I, that, I mean, let's just take care of this right now. God has already known, he's always, always known, and he's taken care of it, and he's got the gift of administration, and, and he's, he's got all the details taken care of. And that's the kingdom of God that overlays, the kingdom of God that overlays our lives here. You know, I always think we're like a subset and over, overarching all of our details of our day and our to-do list and the details of finding, you know, how can I get, uh, you know, orange juice on sale. You know, all those little things, there's, there's the kingdom of God that overlays. So God has always known about my sin. He's always known that I'm prone to leave him to call him unworthy, to easily replace his ways with mine. A quick turn from I love you, Lord, and in that much time, you don't know what you're talking about. 
God has always known that sin is eroding and persuasive and sickening, and it goes from generation to generation, and then it's always expanding and always growing, and every time I sin, the effect of it is like a wake behind a boat. It's just, I, and, and I think I'm not doing anything wrong at all, and I have no idea of the damage that it causes. And I wanted to, one of the things that I, um, I've talked to some people about this before, I, I love this illustration about sin. This I will introduce you to is burr clover. And if any of you, I bet Lori Harden knows what it is. <laughs> it's a weed. And it's very pretty and, and appropriate going into uh, St. Patrick's Day. Uh, it's a little clover. And it will uh, bud a little yellow flower and... Um, and I don't know how you can see it. It's not very clear here. But anyways, that's what it looks like. It's probably about, well, have a, a thicket about that, uh, that spread about that wide until they start running into each other. And at the bottom, and oh, that's not so good. But anyways, at the bottom, if you look closely, there's a root, and it's long, and it's several inches long. And after uh, it rains, you, you know, it's pretty loose, and you can pull out that big expanding bird clover, and it has one long root, and if you're trying to pull it out, there's a little tug, and all of a sudden it gives way. So we have a pretty big yard, and I, I think sometimes I'll uh, go out there and I think, I'm going to get rid of all these weeds. Well, with irrigation, forget it, you know. It's just not going to go. Um, but there's, it's tempting sometimes, because with one pull, you get that big surface area, and all of a sudden you've got normal grass there, and so you try to hedge, and then all I'd look up, and, and I'd hardly made any progress at all. And, and, you know, I'd sit out there, and I'm pulling, and I'm enjoying the fresh, you know, weather and everything, and it's cold. And so um, I kind of got down to kind of highlighting Doug this, this lecture, but got him to pull one out. And that's, that's one, and I said, I'm going to put you up there as a sinner, not me. <laughs> <laughs> So he's holding the bird clover. Well, that's, you know, he started working on it. And he goes, look how much I got. And I looked around the yard. I mean, and it's just, you know, it's just pervasive. So here we are with this big pile of sin. And, uh, and that's if I ever want to be convinced about uh, how ridiculous it is to try and manage my sin, uh, all I have to do is go out in the backyard. It's my little exercise. And I'll start pulling bird clover and say, okay, are you done yet? Are you done yet thinking you can fix it by yourself? Because you can't. You can't. Uh, and that's where Israel was. They sinned, and they got caught, and, and they had, you know, this posture, and the embarrassment, and the shame, and they got caught over and over and over again, and because of that sin, they were scared to death, you know, that God was going to leave them out there in the desert alone, scared to death of that. And so, so God decided to have a solution. And he's always known that he'd provide a relationship, a shalom, and a means. And even in the New Testament, I, I love this word, instruction. God's always instructing us how we can be saved out of and, and be transformed. We spent a lot of time in Romans 12 uh, this month. And how we can be transformed uh, by God so that we don't have to be angry anymore or we don't have to be uh, hurtful. 
uh, for me, I, I, I'm not sensitive sometimes. So that's something that I'm asking God to change in me. Um, but I can't do it by myself or I'm p pulling burr clover. So he's always known that he'd provide a relationship and a means and instruction for it. And first thing he did, we studied recently, is that he created a place to dwell. He created the tabernacle, which means dwell. And so the first thing, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start relationship with you, and I'm going to first make a place. And if you think of, go back, we're going to go back again, and we'll look at that. He's always intended, always intended to be with his people. And so where does he start? In Eden, he makes a place for Adam and Eve to live. Then he makes a tabernacle, which means dwell, for a place where we could meet. Then Jesus comes, and he is our dwelling place. And then Jesus indwells us. And he creates a place in us to dwell. And then in Revelation, um, if you have your Bibles, I want you to open up to Revelation 21. Oh, I got my phone. I was going to do that. Hold on. Going to Revelation 21. See if this works. Now we're going to read that first little part, or you can listen to or follow along. I don't know if you know on your phone on Bible Gateway there is a man who reads scripture, and uh, and his name is Max McLean, and uh, he's out of uh, Tim Keller's church in Manhattan, and he's got the most marvelous voice. So I'm gonna I'm gonna see if I can do this or not. All right. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. We don't want to talk about that. Yeah. So if you ever want to be convinced, I think he's got a wonderful voice. Uh, so that will be our place. That will be our place. And he's preparing it for us now. 
I love to look at the thoroughfare, the glory of God, the timeline of God, how absolute, how well planned out, how firm the foundation is that the kingdom of God overlays and protects us all the way until Revelation 21. Here's where he starts in this, uh, in the tabernacle and then in the high priest to provide eternal relationship. The shalom. He created the means. Started with Genesis 3.15 and then Exodus 11.7 when he said, I, you know, this stuck out to me. I thought it was great. Uh, but against any of the children of Israel, this is when they were leaving uh, Egypt. His protection and his his protection, it's like a mom, it's like Coley and her new baby back there <coughs> with Dash. But against any of the children of Israel, he said, against any of the children of Israel, when they're leaving, not even a dog is going to bark at you or any of your animals. That's how he, he would shepherd them out of, how he would shepherd them out of Egypt. Not even a dog will bark at you. And I thought, man, that's covering it all. Okay, and Exodus 19.4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you up on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. And you could list, go through scripture, boom, ba-boom, 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 how he protected, didn't protect them from bitter waters, didn't pre protect Israel from, you know, from a lot of things. However, he did protect whatever needed to be done to get them to Revelation 21 he protected them 100% that there would be nothing that would get in the way of, of their thoroughfare out of Egypt and into the promised land. And I, the part that's so sweet to me, the finish, is that Joseph, even though he ended up in Egypt, that he did end up being buried in the promised land, just the way God said, you will be buried with your fathers in the promised land. And, and that the ending, the ending is sure. Now here's a pattern, here's something for the oldies that I think a lot of us have, have done. If you've ever been in Campus Crusade or Navigators, this is one of their tools. It's the pattern of how God, how humanity is always forever separating themselves from God, how we needed a bridge, and how God begins to show us the bridge in Exodus 28. That's what's happening. It's the introduction to Christ here. It's the first drum roll of Jesus. We're starting as if it were a chapter book, this would be the beginning, this would be the chapter that Jesus is introduced. And of course, we know him, but it's almost like, to me, became like a bride at a wedding. The music starts playing, and in she comes, and all the eyes are on her. And this is this chapter. This is Jesus. We're starting to see him in all of his glory, in all the beauty of this clothing that was described with the jewels and the regal colors and the, it just, it was the beauty of Christ being shown to us. And this is the beginning of the plan of God as he starts to make the bridge in this, in this, uh, in this picture of how sin separated us from God and Jesus is starting to introduce himself as the bridge of how uh, he will be our substitute and our high priest away when there wasn't any way. God has always wanted me. He has always 
wanted to provide a place for me. He has always wanted to call me his people. He has always known about how I keep sinning and separating from him. And he has always known that I needed help. And he said, I will help you. I cannot untie the tight knots, and neither can you. You know how the tight knots come. They're so tight you can't undo them. You can't get that fork in there to untie that shoelace. It can't be done. But he has given us that. Tim Keller used a story at, uh, that, I, that I loved. He's so good at word pictures about how a little girl got lost. She got lost in the store and running up and down the aisle looking for her mama. Well, I guess it would be dad if you're at Home Depot. Anyways, looking, <laughs> running up and down the aisle looking for dad. And she gets to the end of the aisle and looks and she sees the shadow of her dad. And she realizes that she's almost found and that her panic starts to diminish. And that's the shadow. When they say a shadow and a type in the Old Testament, here's the shadow that we're beginning to see that uh, I've been found. I've been found. And the high priest is a shadow of, of us um, learning who Jesus is. God is always intended for us to have a great high priest. I want to track the high priest idea. You know, at the beginning with Cain and Abel, uh, every man was his own priest. Every man would offer up his own sacrifices, as you knew there. And then the head of the family became the priest. Noah and Abraham would offer sacrifices, even Isaac. Isaac would offer sacrifices. They would build altars, and they would offer their own sacrifices. And Jacob and Job, too. And they would offer their sacrifices on their own altars. And then, uh, in this chapter and in Leviticus, uh, the tribe of Levi, and only to Aaron's family, uh, came the role of high priest. Until Jesus came in, in Hebrews 10, 12, Jesus came in, that it says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. I think what was kind of neat about this, too, is that, that from the time of um, Aaron's family, when the high priest was instituted, that role uh, was provided for right up until the time Christ came, when Christ replaced. So hundreds of years, the role of high priest was uh, instituted. Uh, and I don't know if you saw at the beginning of Exodus 28, the uh, repetition there, to be priest to me, to be priest to me, to be priest to me. And I thought, why does he repeat that so many times? And it's because he's introducing the new role. This is a new role that you, this is the beginning, a new thing that God is introducing the idea of a substitute. And boy, am I glad for that. I'm glad for somebody that stands in front of me, and I always think of that, uh, remember the Titans movie when, uh, I think that's the name of it, Big Mike. Big Mike was um, protecting this little guy, and, and they'd go into school, and you know, this little guy's running behind Big Mike, and nobody'd mess with him anymore because this big guy was in front of him, and all of a sudden everybody would, would treat him with respect because he had this big uh, defensive uh, linebacker friend 
that's Jesus who defends me, who runs in front of me. And this is the beginning. We got to read the chapter, the, the garments of the high priest, which I guess woman kind of love that. Uh, the glitterati, if you saw the Academy Awards, and you saw the stage, and they had this arc of glitter. It, it was really something else. I don't know what it was made out of, but it's something expensive and glamorous. But it was just beautiful. And I thought, oh, man, that's going to look like heaven, except maybe I don't know how many people sitting in the audience know that or, or will see that, but they can see it now, I guess. But this, this new idea is not only that we have a substitute, but we have a regal substitute. The person that's running in front of me, the big Mike, is, uh, is of royalty. I mean, he's top of the line. It's not like I have a substitute that's not going to pull off my legal case. This is a substitute who is the most skilled, who is the most qualified, who is God himself, is my substitute. And that, that fell fresh on me this time. Um, the, just the whole thing of the high priest, it's the sacred garments, it's, it's for glory and splendor, this language, it's for consecration, it's gold and indigo and purple and crimson and twisted linen and designer's work and lapidary work and engravings, filigree, ruby, topaz, malachite, that's in the first row. And then row two, you know, turquoise, sapphire, amethyst, I don't even know how to say that, jacinth, agate, and crystal, and beryl, and carnelian, which I don't know if we even have that anymore, and jasper, and gold. And I thought, why is this detail so important that God would go to such extravagance? You know, what's the big deal of this? And um, Patty Holine's not here, but she's in our small group, and she, she was very moved last semester when... Abraham put his son on the altar and it opened a door for her to understand what God the Father did when he gave his only begotten son. And of course, sometimes we have to understand God through human things. But this is God's, the reason I think that this is so beautiful and so decorated is that God is saying, this is how I view my son. This is how beautiful I think he is. This is how I adore my son. This is how I proclaim his worth. This is the very introduction to the Son of God. And I, this year, have spent time on Psalm 29, and it says, Worship God in holy array, which means worship him this way, as beautiful. And isn't it wonderful that God thinks that beauty is important, that beauty to him is critical. And, and even all these jewels will be on the streets in heaven, they'll be on the walls, they'll be, it's, it's going to be very glittery, very beautiful. So we'll swing in Exodus, we're in Exodus 28 still. Um, and, and this is a new idea too, it's just a new idea of substitution, the new idea, I mean, we can look back and see that, uh, that Jesus is being introduced, that the individual names of each of Israel's sons' name is engraved and changed into a consecrated, they're changed into a consecrated people who are now called remembered. That's new. 
you know, 400 years in Egypt, they weren't remembered. That's what it felt like. But God is now saying, I remember you, and I'm calling you remembered. That's new. That's a new thing that happened in this chapter. And then in verse 29, And Aaron shall carry the names of Israel's sons and the breastplate of judgment over his heart of heart and feeling, and the breastplate will be banded so that the breastplate will not slip from the ephod when he comes into the sanctum as a remembrance before the Lord perpetually. All these shadows of Jesus, the introduction, the drum roll, the bride walking down the aisle, here we are. This is the beginning. And for Egypt, I mean, for the Israelites, they're no longer forgotten. I'm sorry, I'm not forgotten anymore. I came to Christ as an adult. Um, and so being forgotten is, is sweet to me, you know, that I'm not anymore, you know, that now I have relationship with Christ. Okay, then we're going to go over to Exodus 29 uh, and just kind of skim through that. Um, and, and some of this consecration, uh, this anointing, which is sweet when Jesus was baptized, that the water, the parallels there um, are beautiful. Uh, so, And you shall turn the ram to smoke on the altar. It's a burnt offering to the Lord, a pleasing fragrance that there's still a mediation here, that, that not when I used to be looking like this, now I, I can please God and I can be acceptable in his sight. Uh, the blood and the oil all over the priests, which to us is kind of yucky. You know, we talked about laundry uh, in our group. <laughs> but um, these things were seen as purifying agents and even talked about the stains that would remain would still be beautiful to see on the high priest. And then in verse 29, and his sons after him, that God even provided high priests, he made sure that the high priest that was Aaron and his sons after him, making sure that he said, and you're going to have a high priest, even after you're dead, Aaron, that your lineage, I'm still wanting to have a high priest for the people after you. I just thought that was very considerate of God to think of everybody that came after, still covering all the bases. And then in verse 43, I shall meet with you there to speak to you, consecrate you through my glory, abide in their midst, and I shall be God to them, and I'm, I have brought them out to abide in their midst. Um, one of the commentaries, um, Old Testament scholar named Robert Alter, um, who I, I like very much, said that the jewels that were collected from the Egyptians, the elaborate construction of the tabernacle, the inner sanctum, and the altar the vestments of the priests and how the priests themselves butchering the animals and splashing gore on the altar and themselves surely would have been the climax of the entire service. I mean, when you think of how they brought the jewels, all that whole stretch, that this would have been, uh, this would have been the highlight. So uh, the ending, I think, uh, the part that is the most... Um, the thing that just keeps echoing to me is God saying, I am the Lord their God. And he said it right before the Ten Commandments too, to make sure that he established relationship. 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 I am the Lord and I'm your Lord. Uh, we can, just a rule of thumb for interpreting Old Testament is that the New Testament has to match it. Okay, it has to echo that same thing. So here we are in 2 Corinthians 6.16. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. 
and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And Psalm 119, your faithfulness continues through all generations. You establish the earth, and it endures. I, um, we're going to sing a song. Is it time for the song? All right. Um, this is a song, one Bible study. I was um, in here, and on the way home, well, I, when I lived downtown, and so I was out here on Butler, coming up to the street light, and I love this song, and I can hardly listen to it without singing it. Well, I made the mistake of while I was driving, closing my eyes, um, and I, I rear-ended somebody right out here, um, and uh, <laughs> but, so I can hardly even sing this song without thinking of it, but I still close my eyes. Better not to listen to it in the car, <laughs> but sometimes I think I can sing like a black girl. I just love it, and so this is, this is a, a beautiful song. I hope you can worship with us. So well done. Thank you, Jesus. I loved every mm -hmm. single one. 